This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. This morning we're going to talk about bats and the importance of bats, um, and in particular, bats at Rio Fernando Park. Mike, are you there? Uh, I can hear you now. All right, great. I have on the phone with me this morning... Mike Ballisbury. I uh, I own this little... So uh, Mike is a bat expert. He is the natural resources and bat specialist at Aeolus Consulting Services. And we do mostly, um, we do birds and bats. Uh, you know, we assess impacts uh, to birds and bats for various projects. Throughout the country, our main clients tend to be um, wind, wind energy um, developers, and, you know, bats and, and wind and birds and wind have become a big issue lately. So we work to try to minimize impacts to both of those groups of animals. And we also do some plant stuff on the side. I was just going to let everyone know that we have been working with you on a bat monitoring project at Rio Fernando Park. And so you came up and installed a solar-powered bat monitor last summer. So that's really what I want to talk about. I want to use the, the, the bats and the bat monitor at Rio Fernando Park as a way to, to get at bats in general. Like, how does it work? Well, what it, it's basically, in its simplest form, it's just a fancy microphone that picks up the ultrasonic calls of bats, digitizes them, and then um, saves it as a WAV file. And then from the WAV file, you can do all kinds of uh, analyses with various software to try to identify which species were recorded. Um, unfortunately, you know, bats aren't like birds. You, you know, when you hear a bat call or you look at the sonogram, the picture of the bat call, that, which you can produce from these wave files, it's not always clear what species that belongs to. And there's several companies that make quote-unquote auto ID software that you spit these wave files into and then it tells you what species they belong to. Even the best of these programs are terribly inaccurate, and the manufacturers of those programs, the developers, will admit that, but it's the best we have right now. You can't absolutely positively identify them based on their call because there's just so much variation and there's so many species that are so close to each other, there's really no way of telling. In a way, it does make me think about birds, how a certain species of birds, it, based on their location, will have different types of calls, um, almost like a, a, a dialect or a, you know, a localized uh, call or song culture. Yeah, that, true. Um, that's very, that's, uh, in, and in fact, in some of the bat calls, we can use the location as sort of a, uh, to kind of steer us in the right direction. Oh, that's interesting. But, and to, just to step back to the machine for, for just a minute. So right. the monitor at Rio Fernando Park, it records the sounds and then you run them through. I, I just want to kind of understand the process better. You, you run those recordings through a software that's been developed and is, sounds like it's constantly being updated that will help to identify or give you at least a general idea of which species is making that call. That's, that's right. And the first thing to do is to, once all these ultrasonic calls are recorded, is to take out the ones that don't, obviously don't belong to bats. You know, insect noise, leaves rustling, wind blowing, uh, you know, there's so much ultrasonic noise out there. It's amazing, you know, when you turn on a bat detector and there's, there's some of them you can set to, to like a speaker setting so you can hear what the bat detector is, you know, quote unquote hearing. And 
it's just a constant barrage of ultrasonic noise. So you have to filter all that stuff out first. And that's relatively easy because a lot of the a lot of that noise is just it's like random noise. You know, the bat right. calls have a very specific design to them. So it's it's fairly easy to get the non bat calls out. Um then after that it's a, it's just a, a process of using several different uh commercially available um filters for the species and then one that I've developed myself and to try to it's pinpoint and get your best guess at what species are there. And for the most part, it's fairly accurate. You know, at any location, you can just sort of, you know, just by the, you know, published bat ranges and just from, you know, being in the bat business, you know, kind of beforehand what species you'd expect to see there. And then you kind of work off of that and compare it with, with the sonograms and compare it with the software output and then sort of, put up a best guess scenario of what might be there. That's, um, that's super you know, cool. <laughs> unfortunately, there's, there's no software that, you know, can identify, you know, with hundred percent accuracy, all the species in, in North America. Right. And so do you but kind of getting... ground truth it then? Do you go back and, and, and use your um, experience and knowledge to, to um, kind of truth the software? Well, one thing you can do if it's for a critical project, you know, let's say it's, out east somewhere, and there are, you know, endangered species there that could be affected by, by um, wind turbines. Um, in those rare instances, then you would also sort of back up the acoustic data with mist netting, you know, catching the bats at night over, you know, a stock tank or okay. water source of some, some kind, and then um, just to verify that those species were there. Unfortunately, with white-nose syndrome, which, you know, we might discuss later on, um, handling bats is a great way to transmit this, this deadly disease from one bat to another. So mist netting has become sort of reduced to uh, only when it's absolutely, absolutely critical that the bats have to be identified. Yeah, go ahead and explain what this disease is that is impacting bats all over North America. It, it's It's pretty bad. It's a scary thing. You know, this disease has... It's taken out, God, I don't know, 10 million bats, 20 million bats. Nobody really knows for sure. And it, it popped up in, in central New York, I think, in 2005, 2006. And it's a fungal disease, and it affects bats that, um, well, it most, most radically affects the bats that, that roost in, in large aggregates, like in mines and caves, you know, like during the wintertime when they go into hibernate. And this fungus can be transferred from one bat to the to another, and it also persists on the substrate, you know, on the cave walls. So when the bat come a bat comes back in, it can it can infect itself. Oh wow! And it's it's a nasty thing, and it's slowly, well, rapidly actually, spread its way west from New York. And I think there's only uh, six or so, six or seven states that it hasn't been suspected and yet and thankfully new mexico is one of them but it's just a matter of time before it's here and it could be here you know it's just that the effort to sample you know all the potential hibernation sites is just it's mammoth i mean it can't be done right. but there's so many caves and mines in the state as well as other western states so it's a nasty thing and it's it's really decimating um bat populations in the east so you have you know, a bat that was already endangered and its population has been, you know, declining, 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 
and then this terrible disease comes along and it just it just wipes out. It's so dramatic. You know, people have been going into these hibernation sites for some of the eastern species and you know, there'll be thousands of bats there and now there's none. And it's it's a nasty thing. You know, and I wanted it's, to dive into this a little later, but but this is a good point is um, or a good time, I guess, to ask, well, so, so what? So 10 to 20 million bats die. That's, that's pretty sad. But, but what's, what's the impact that that has on, um, on the ecosystems? Well, whenever, you know, you, you remove anything from the ecosystem, you know, you, you assume that every species that's, you know, around is there for a reason and it has its own little part. And, you know, with bats, you know, it's always been said that, you know, bats eat all the, all, all the mosquitoes, you know, and they do eat mosquitoes, but, you know, it's not their preferred food source just because the mosquitoes are so small and, you know, they'd much rather grab a big moth than a little dinky mosquito. But, you know, the, to answer what happens if all the bats die, you know, and that's probably not going to happen because there are some species that are, have been shown to be uh, positive for this white-nose syndrome, and there are some carrier species that can carry the disease, but they're not affected by it. And there are some that it just hasn't been found in at all. So it's not going to kill all the bats. But if you remove that many, you know, species of bats from the ecosystem, what's the effect? And, right. you know, this has been discussed a lot. And really, I think the best answer is we just don't know. Because depending on the species, bats play a wide variety of roles out in, in, in nature and in, in agriculture. Ah, definitely. They, they do indeed. And, you know, things like, you know, like the grasshoppers that'll just consume everything, you know, locusts. You know, bats love those things. And when oh. the big spawns of those insects come up, um, you know, the bats just swarm like crazy and to get all they can. And in the Southwest, you know, there's, there's bats that are pollinators also. And uh, they're almost the sole pollinators to some of the desert plants. So, you know, it's easy to see what happens if you, if you remove those species. But as far as some of the other ones goes, you know, nobody knows because, well, there's not a lot known about bats in the first place. You know, so much is unknown about bats. I mean, there's some of the most common bats, we don't know what they do in the wintertime, uh-huh. for instance. And so nobody knows where they go. And Nobody has a good handle on bat populations or ranges or any of that stuff, and because they're such secretive little things, right? You know, so and they're out at it's night. It's hard to, right? <laughs> and it, it's hard to, you know, really think about, you know, the real impacts when bats vanish. You know, and along with the bats vanishing, you know, I'm not saying that they're necessarily one of those, you know, quote unquote indicator species, but you know, if the bats are having a hard time, you know, other wildlife is having a hard time too. Right. Um, and, you know, that that was reinforced by this study that was published, uh, I think it was just last week, about the loss of population decline among birds of about 3 billion birds. Um, right. And, it's, it, you know, it is an estimate and there are, uh, you know, disputes with the study, but the fact of the matter is, is that whether it's 3 billion, 5 billion, or 1 billion, these uh, species, the diversity um, and the actual numbers of birds, at, just like with bats, is in steep decline. I guess we're going to find out what's going to happen when, you know, the populations of these species <laughs> decline, you know, beyond a salvageable limit. Um, 
I think we're certainly headed there. You know, it, it's it's not a good outlook for, for species like bats. Yeah, definitely not. Just to step back to Rio Fernando Park, Mike, um, so we've got this bat monitor. You've told us how it works. Um, what has it shown us so far? Uh, yes, please. Let's talk about happy bats. Yeah, exactly. I got all sad, and now, yeah, let's, let's go back and talk about good things. There are some... Uh, some uh, some promising things about the white nose. They've been look. They've been uh, uh, some groups have been working on um, uh, uh, what would you call them? Antifungals uh, treatments for to treat caves and to treat infected bats, and that's looking kind of promising. So you know that hopefully that'll be developed into something that's you know easy to apply and and might save you know at least a couple hundred thousand bats um, from the disease. But yes, uh, well, uh, Rio I'm, Fernando. I'm sorry. Before we go on to Rio Fernando, because you just keep bringing up these really interesting things, is you said that the 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 fungus doesn't it doesn't impact every single species of bats. Is there any sign of immunity building among populations? Like, um, you know, sometimes a, a species can adapt to to these sorts of things. Is there any sign of that at all? None that has been um, been able to be verified. As it stands now, there's two labs in the country that can do the diagnosis for white-nose syndrome. One of them is the National Wildlife Health Research Center in Madison, Wisconsin, and then the other labs in Arizona. And they both use different protocols. And if you want to submit a sample to them, you know, swabbing of, of the fungus uh, from a cave, you uh, they both require you to put it in a, in a separate solution or different solutions. And there's been some talk about, you know, which solution actually preserves the the uh, swabbing better. And the analyses on, of both of those, like I said, institutions are, are different. So there's no agreement as to what, you know, what's the best protocol to use. And there's no agreement as to, you know, how the swab should be collected and stored and things like that. Right. So we just don't know yet. No. Okay, so let's let's leave that horribly depressing subject to the side for the moment and go back to Rio Fernando Park and and tell us what what the bat monitor at Rio Fernando Park is showing. Uh, well, uh, first, it's such a pleasure to be involved with this project um, uh, for lots of different reasons. You know, a lot of what we do is you know assess impacts you know ahead of some sort of development or during the development or after development. You know, so you know that the the habitat's going to be impacted somehow, and that's why we're called out to you know to do what we do. It's uh, it's a rare occasion when something like you know Rio Fernando comes along, where it's the exact opposite. You know, you want to improve things and make it better. And when I first um, got up there, when I first stepped foot on the property, it's like, oh my God, this place is bat heaven. I mean, <laughs> bats have it made here, especially with Fred Bakken next door, with those big ponds. I mean, that is just ideal bat drinking and foraging habitat, you know, all the insects that fly right over the top of the water. And then with all the trees that you folks have up there, I mean, it really is an ideal place for bats. And, you know, once the beavers come in, um, you know, and pond up your property a little bit more, it's just going to be that much better, and it's just it's just a pleasure to be involved with something positive for once, where you know things are going to be better for the bats, and because that's almost never the case, and not just for bats, but for you know everything up there, you know the invertebrates, right. the birds, and and you know the vegetation, everything, the water, the water system itself. 
it's just a great thing to see and be part of. Yeah, and we've so, just had some dramatic, dramatic results from the restoration work that we have done, and we're not even halfway there yet. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great project, and I just can't wait to see where it where it goes in the years to come. So, I set up the bat detector, knowing that my God, there's going to be a, a boatload of bats up here, and it's going to be really interesting to see, um, you know, how that the bat activity increases, um, which I'm sure it will once things sort of, you know, once your plans come to fruition and things stabilize up there, there's no question there's going to be more bats. And I'm trying to remember the first, the first big analysis I did on the bats up there, how many bat calls were, uh, I think you said that there were 14 different species, either resident or migratory. That sounds about right. And, um, the, the bat detector, does all its electronic mumbo-jumbo, and then it spits everything out into just a, a portable hard drive. And those are changed out at, you know, whatever interval you want to change them out at. And so when I looked at that, and I didn't do a real rigorous analysis. I didn't look at all the sonograms and tried to get it down. But I think there's probably about 18 species now that have been recorded on it. Wow. Uh, owing also to, um, we caught a spring migration this time around, too, because it was... Know, active in the spring, and the bat activity always increases during the spring and fall migration. So we picked up some of that. Um, I think I was trying to remember how many calls were on this last thing. It, there's there's like hundreds of thousands of wave files that have to be analyzed, analyzed with right. the software to get it down to the bats, and and uh, the number escapes me from the last one, but. Anyway, I think there's a, there was about 7,000 verified bat calls since, uh, I, I, let's just say since July. Um, July of this year? Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, 7,500, somewhere in there. And those are the ones that could be, you know, within, you know, reason attributed to a, a specific species of bats. And there's, there's, you know, 20,000, 30,000 that were obviously bat calls, but they couldn't be identified as species either because they were, you know, poor quality recording or just one little blip or um, something like that. So uh, I think of the species that, of the 18 species, 10 of them are probably, um, well, not probably, 10 of them are tree roosting species and the other eight are um uh, uh, roost in, in buildings, in you know culverts, any sort of structure that they're protected and has the right sort of thermodynamics for them. So as you might expect, most of the species up there are tree roosting. There's one species, the the Yuma myotis, a little, um, just a little gray gray bat. Basically, there's this group of bat myotis. It's the it's the most populous genus of bats in the state, and they all tend to kind of look the same. Little gray bats, about 10 to 15 grams. Um, oh, tiny. At first glance, it's hard to tell them apart. They look almost identical, but they all have their own little things on them that you can, you know, you can physically tell one from the other. And they're, most of their calls are more or less distinct, so it's, it's fairly easy to, with, with, to be confident about species identification on them. But the Eumyotis is probably in the top three species that was recorded up there. It, 
you know, that's the caveat that was recorded. That doesn't mean that that's, you know, they're the, the third most popular species up there. They have the third, third most number of calls recorded. Um, you really can't do accurate population estimates with these bat detectors because it could be one bat flying around in front of the bat detector all night long. Yeah, know, it's not so sophisticated have... enough to distinguish individuals. No, the uh, the company I use, though, um, uh, Binary Acoustic Technology, uh, this this company in Arizona that makes the bat detectors that I like to use, has come up with with a new unit that can track um, a call coming in from a bat. So, you know, the microphone is just, just pointing out into the air. So they can be bats flying at it from, you know, several directions at once. And these all get recorded. Well, this new unit is able to differentiate between them and sort of track each individual call that's coming in. And I haven't got any of those units yet, but it's it's a vast improvement over trying to get some sort of population dynamics out of bat calls. Uh, one thing that detectors are great for, though, is getting relative activity. So you can see, you know, the spikes in the spring migration, spikes in the fall migration, and one of, what I think is one of the most important spikes is the activity around um, the maternity season. Uh-huh. So, you know, that when the when the pups are born um, in late spring, early summer, uh, for most of the species anyway, you know, the, the the moms have to be much more active. I mean, they have to feed more because, you know, they're raising, you know, typically two pups, um, sometimes, you know, three, rarely three, but, you know, at least one anyway. So, you know, they have to feed a lot more, they have to drink a lot more, and then when the young become volant, when they were able to fly on their own, then they start feeding and, and flying. So you see this big spike of activity, and that's really indicative of, of course, having a maternity roost nearby. Um, and uh, I think at the... At I haven't done those analyses yet for this, but, you know, I'm 100% certain that there's some significant uh, tree roost maternity sites with um, within the land trust property up there. Oh, wow. So you can get relative activity, which is, which is well, it, it's almost as important, I think, as having, you know, specific numbers of bats, because that's going to change. Even if you could count every bat up there, it's going to change from year to year and, right. and from different times of the year, you know, like, like your rye field up there, you know, you look at a rye field and you say, Oh, what does a bat want with a rye field? How that's going to help them. But above agricultural fields, especially during certain times of the years, you know, as you know, they're just loaded with insects. Right. And, and you'll see, you know, the bats chew in on that. I mean, you know, they're, they're waiting for it basically, you know, if it's ag sites have been up for a while, they know at certain times of the year, there's going to be, a lot of good um, prey base there, so they'll they'll you know they'll concentrate on that. So you know the uh, the the park up there. Um, I mean, you guys have everything. <laughs> you got yeah, ash fields. You got yeah. water. You got all kinds of insects and a, a great uh, variation of of plant life. Right. You know, which supports different types of insects. Yeah, just so within that big, twenty acres, we have a. a a broad diversity of habitats and, and ecosystems. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's amazing actually that, 
you know, having such a little, you know, a relative, you know, on the scale of things, a relatively little area with this sort of diversity has such a dramatic impact on the on the local wildlife. And of course, you know, it, it's a birder's dream up there, right? Right. You know, the, the Fred Bach has been known, you know, for years for that. But, you know, you have the same species at Rio Fernando. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, they're healthy, they're thriving, and it's just getting better. And it's, it, it's just a great thing to see that such a small property can have such this amazing impact. And, you know, it, it's relative, in the scale of things, it's relatively easy to do, too, you know. It's, it's not like you had to bring in massive machinery and, you know, you know, do all kinds of stuff. These little things that you've been doing have just paying off big, and it's, it's just, it's such a, uh, it's like a safe house for bats, I would say. Yeah, and one of the things that we've really uh, wanted to emphasize in our restoration work is is exactly that is is that you can do this kind of stuff slowly over time with minimal uh, inputs, minimal activity. You the the land can heal itself with a, with a little nudge here and there um, over time if you're caring for it. You got proof positive right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I'm, uh, I'm assuming, and I just can't wait if, as the years go by to see, you know, how the bats are responding to this. And the good thing about having one of these monitors up is, you know, as the years go by, you can, you know, you have like a baseline and then things sort of start to to um, level out so you can get a, a really good picture of what's going on, you know, with the bats. And hopefully, you know, as, as the analyses techniques get better and the software gets better get a you know a much better picture of exactly which species are there right i yep. think the um, the uh you know the species list i think right now the the western um small-footed myotis is sort of leading the, the charge i think is at least as far as calls go um a tree roosting species of course and then um yeah, I think it's followed by the little brown bat, and then that that Yuma bat, the one I was talking about, that that uh, roost in structures. They have been known to have maternity roost in trees, and I think one thing I, that uh, well, it's one of my it's on my to do list for this for the land trust project is to try to zoom in on the Yuma bats because. You know, there's certainly a, a bunch of old buildings, you know, within the general vicinity that they, they, they could roost in and bridge culverts and things like that. But they had been known to have maternity roost in trees. And that's the only time they really use trees is for maternity roosting. And there's a lot of Yuma calls, Yuma Myotis calls recorded um, at Rio Fernando. So it'd be interesting to see if there's a spike in those during the um, during the maternity season, and that would indicate that you know there's there could potentially be a uh, maternity roost site on um, on the property. And maternity roost sites and hibernation sites are like the big things that you want to protect because that's when all the bats come together. And those sites, especially hibernation, are very uh, micro environmentally critical. I mean, they have to have just the right temperature, just the right humidity. And uh, that's pretty much for the maternity sites, too. It has to be the right temperature. But there's a lot more variance in, in what makes a good maternity site than what makes a good 
hibernation site. So they're very picky, is what you're saying. Um, very picky about these different these different sites. So if you've if you've got that kind of activity on the land, you're saying that that you, you really want to per, perhaps know where that is so that you can give extra protection to that. Is that is that what you're saying? That would be a good thing for the for the more. I won't even say more destructive for the for the destructive projects since your project isn't destructive at all. But for you know the destructive projects, even if you know it's kind of benign, like they're putting in a pipeline or something like that, you know it's going to have a, a minimal in, impact. But being able to identify a hibernation site or a, or a significant maternity roost site is it's that's like tantamount. I mean that's that's really what you want to go for, and it's very difficult. You know, you you can put transmitters on bats or little lights and follow them at night, but since the bats are so dang small, you can't like put you know a radio collar on them. Right. Um, it's hard to follow them around, and those little transmitters go out of range really quickly. So the bat takes off and boom, you know, beep beep beep, and it's gone. Um, but you know, if you can identify sites like that, that is absolutely key, and then you can make sure that those sites are protected. Uh, you know, for hibernation, bats li- have lived in this incredibly stable world for, you know, millions of years. And, you know, they're back in a mine, back in a cave, well, let's say cave, because there weren't mines then, but they're back in a cave where the temperature, you know, varies, you know, a couple degrees, you know, throughout the year. And the humidity is at a certain level that rarely changes, and the wind speed just you know, it's it's measurable, but, you know, it's stable. And they don't have any predators back there. So, you know, bats have this very, um, I don't want to say sheltered life, but they can't take a lot of, a lot of environmental disturbances, uh, um, you know, in changes in things like temperature and, and humidity and things like that because, you know, they're designed to have it a certain way and that's how they've evolved, and, and you really can't change that without having, without you know, negatively impacting. Well, and that brings bats. up a question. Um, you know, we've part of our restoration work, especially in the in the wetland and along the the Rio Fernando itself, has involved taking out um, some of those old large um, Russian olive trees. Are right. are we potentially harming some some um, roosting or hibernation sites by doing that? Um, roosting sites for sure. Uh, hibernation. There's the tree roosting species. Um, almost all of them fly south for the winter, and uh, you know, either the southern part of the state, you know, where there's lots of lots of caves or mines, or they go someplace where they can go and and hibernate, or else they just fly even farther south and just remain active. So it's probably not. There are a few hardy bats, like the hoary bats, um, that can probably, well, I don't know, it gets awfully cold up there in winter. But if they find the right tree, they might be able to get, you know, hibernate up there. The um, They can withstand, especially hoary bats, can withstand amazingly cold temperatures. I uh, The reason that I got into bats in the first place is I was an undergrad at Wisconsin in this uh, wildlife physiology class. And the professor said that the lowest temperature of a hibernating animal ever recorded was in a bat. And I think he said it was like 24 degrees or something like that. Oh, man. So, 
Yeah. So yeah. So I, after the class was over, you know, I came up to him and I said, you know, you said twenty four degrees. You know, what did you really mean? And he's like, no, really, twenty four degrees body temperature. And I was like, that's below freezing, man. Yeah, right. That's not possible. <laughs> so they have all these incredible physiological adaptations to deal with cold weather, and they pump the water inside their cells, outside of the cells, and then they fill the cells with um, with this sort of glycerol based thing. This kind of fancy fat um, compound. So the water that was in their cells actually freezes, but it's outside of the cells, so their cells don't burst. So it doesn't cause any really damage to them. So they can get their body temperatures just ridiculously low, and then they can warm up. They have special apparatus, too, to warm up quickly so they can fly. Um, You know, within, within 10 minutes, they can be at flight temperature, which is, you know, 110 degrees or something like that. Um, going from basically frozen to to flying. Um, I ha- I had no idea. That's that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, because it, it does. It's insane. It does get really cold up here, and so and and that's one of my my questions that I also have is you, you know, out of these eighteen species, who does stick around during the winter? What are, which species at Rio Fernando Park are um, are resident or year round, and and which migrate? Um, those ones that stick around are, are mighty tough. Well, I would say that, um, I, you know, I wouldn't be sure that any of them actually stay, but if any bat is capable of, of that, it's it's the hoary bat. It's one of the tree-roosting bats. Just a beautiful bat. They're, they actually have some color to them. They're sort of frosted silver and a little bit of um, almost red in there sometimes. And uh, they're just, for a bat anyway, they're just big, massive, tough bats. Uh, most of the bats, although their teeth are just insanely sharp, they're just razor-sharp points, their mouths are so small that it's hard for them to, you know, open it wide enough to get a hold of your finger. Uh-huh. And when they do, you can just sort of, you know, gently pull them off. The hoary bats, if they chomp onto you, they're locked on. And, you know, bats are fragile. You know, they have very fragile bones because they have to fly. They have to keep the weight down. Right. And you can't just shake your hand around to to get them off. But these hoary bats will just clamp on. And, you know, it's tough to get them off of you. They're They're just really interesting, you know, hardcore bats. So if any bat hangs around in winter, I would suspect it's hoary bats. Um, well, there might be some, some uh, you know, within the general area, you know, some cliff faces, you know, fissures in the in the in there, or some buildings or something that might provide, you know, adequate um, environment for hibernation. But I would say most of them, you know, at least head to the southern part of the state where they can go in a mine or, or a cave or something like that. Okay. And, and, you know, we do, we're doing that restoration work, um, the, the, the tree removal of the invasive Russian olives, we're doing that in the winter. Yeah. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, we're probably not having much of an impact on, on, on the bats by doing that work. We're, when they come back in the spring, um, they've got a new, healthier ecosystem to work with. Yeah, and if the the hoary bats tend to be pretty solitary themselves, so um, you know it would I wouldn't expect any to be up there just because it it gets so cold, um, and 
you know, being inside a, a snag doesn't offer that much protection from no, the cold, you know, a little bit, especially if the sun's shining on it. But I, I, would, I would still think it would be too cold. But that's not just, you know, we're always, every time anyone says anything about bats, you always have to back up and say, but, you know, right. there's a chance <laughs> just because we don't know, you know. Um, but the good thing about getting the, the Russian olive out of there is, most of the, you know, any bat will go inside a hollowed out, you know, dead tree, a snag. Um, you know, that's ideal up in there. But a lot of them like to get underneath the bark. And the Russian olive bark, it's not, it's not like um, cottonwood bark, you know, where it's big and it's flaky and there's, you know, chunks falling off all the time. And uh, I think in the long, well, in the long run, you know, I would say definitely having, you know, things like cottonwood in there that are always dropping limb, limbs and, you know, always doing crazy stuff, you know, that would be a better tree for, um, well, it would seem to be a better tree right. say, yeah. than, than the Russian olives are. And then just, you know, the, the impact that Russian olives have, you know, with the, with the water and the other vegetation and everything, it's just going to be better to get them out of there. You know, of course you know that. So it's going to be, you might, you know, lose a couple of uh, roost sites, um, you know, some day roost sites. But in the long run, it's gonna it's gonna pay off. I think, Mike. In our last like just seven eight minutes here, um, the bats at Rio Fernando Park. You've talked about how they're they're definitely going after the insects that are above the um, the rye and the agricultural fields. And then, of course, now that we've got a beaver there, we've got um, uh, ponding and and that that sort of stuff. Um, but what other roles do they play at Rio Fernando Park? I, I, one, I guess specifically I'm asking, are any of them pollinators up here? I know that's more common in the down where you're at in Carlsbad and then in the Sonoran Desert, um, Chihuahuan Desert and Sonoran Desert. What about up here? No, I w- none of them would be pollinators um, just because, uh, you know, they're all, they're all carnivores up there. And, uh, you know, the nectivorous bats in the, in the southwest part of the state, um, for sure, you know, they, they get into the... Uh, into the, uh, you know, the cacti and the yuccas and things like that. Um, but up there, no, uh, up by you folks, um, or in, in any other part of the state, they're all insectivorous bats. It's a tricky thing to say, um, you know, if they control populations of insects. Uh-huh. You know, especially things, you know, as the beavers do their thing. Man, beavers are the greatest things in the world. I think if you can, if any ecosystem... I totally agree. If you can move beavers in everything will take care of itself. Um, but anyway, back to the, uh, you know, to the, the, the beaver ponds, um, you know, there's going to be a lot more uh, moss flying above the water and those, um, you know, like the net wing sorts of insects. And then, of course, all the aquatic insects, too. Um, you know, whether they'll control those populations, you know, that's a hard thing to say. And, you know, you'd have to sort of define control you know, you'd have to look at the populations of those insects without the bats and then, you know, see if they're annoying, basically, and then those populations with the bats. Um, typically, there's usually so many insects of any species around that unless you have, you know, thousands of bats per night chomping away on them, it really doesn't knock them back as much, you know? and I, Okay. As a bat biologist, you know, you always like to talk about how great bats are and, 
and things like that, but there's not a lot of data to support, you know, for a small area like that, bats controlling insects. I mean, you take something like a Carlsbad with all the free-tailed bats or a Bracken cave that has like 20 million free-tailed bats in, in Texas. You know, when those bats come out, they most of them swarm up several thousand feet or um, fly up several thousand feet and catch these swarms of insects that sort of are moving through the area up at that um, elevation. So uh, there, you know, they certainly can control and have a big impact on, on the population. But I would say, you know, at, at uh, Fred Baca and Rio Fernando, they, the bats will keep it at a, at a natural insect layout level, you know, a sort of like... Just keeping the system in balance. Yeah, of what it should be, you know. And, you know, the effects, you know, you know, you'd think that any species that's being preyed upon is going to, you know, respond to that, you know. Um, You know, like you take out a couple of coyotes and then they're replaced by four more coyotes. You know, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that, you know, insects can respond to that also. So, um, as you know, as the bats are preying on the insects, if it becomes significant, you know, that just leaves room for more or different insects to move in. So I guess that's a long roundabout way of saying that, yeah, I really, I really don't know what would happen with the insect population up there with or without bats. But it's also another way of saying that, that you when you have species like beaver and bats, that are supposed to be in the ecosystem, it helps the ecosystem stay in balance. Oh, definitely. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's really the, what I hear. Um, that's you know, the thing, and that's... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to no, say, you. that's the no, hard you. thing to, <laughs> to legislate for and to convince people, especially, you know, under the current administration, you can't, you know, they want a dollar value. How many of this, how many of that? And with bats especially species like bats, where so little is known about them, despite all the years of research, you know, we don't have that information. And, you know, if, you know, if I can't tell you that, it, you know, they're knocking back, you know, 20,000 mosquitoes a night, then, you know, what good are they? You know, that's sort of the, the attitude from a lot of the, the uh, you know, the regulation agencies go to land management agencies. Right. And, you know, like, like you said, the important thing is that balance and, you know, they're part of the system, and a healthy system needs all these parts. And, um, you know, it's hard to quantify that stuff, and it's hard to convince certain people of those benefits. Yeah. Um, Mike, in just the one minute that we have left, um, if people are interested in attracting bats to their houses and their yards, um, is there a resource online that people can check out to to see what they can do to... Um, you know, to enhance habitat and get bats to come. Oh, yeah. I think there's probably all kinds of info available online about um, bat houses. I'm sure you can buy, you know, prefab bat houses. You can build your own, which is probably a little little more fun. But um, the important thing with the bat house is, is to, you know, make sure there's a good range of temperatures that these bat houses, you know, have and that they don't get too ridiculously hot, um, in them, although some of them for maternity, some maternity roosts have been just you know well over a hundred degrees. Um, so the, the the thermal variation within the bat house is the important thing. 
Mike, we got to unfortunately wrap it up because I, I have a bunch more questions for you. But, you know, when you come up to Rio Fernando Park, I'll, I'll hit you up. This is uh, Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. And we've been talking with Mike Balistrieri of Aeolus Consulting Services about bats. Um, Mike, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm very welcome, and I certainly encourage. In fact, I demand everybody to go up there and check out your beautiful property because it is just a, a wonderful thing. It's a special spot, so, yeah. A, r- a rare thing. Thank you for yeah. working with us and, and helping us out. Uh, my pleasure. Awesome. Have a good one. All right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico, edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.